Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. What's it like to host a late night radio show for CBS Sports? We'll talk about that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On episode 86 of The Bridge. (laughs) Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time, to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available 24 hours after the initial broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode and additional content from the show on Thursday nights on iTunes under The Bridge Sports Podcast or on my website at londonbridge.com. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can call in or text into the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the siren. With the Los Angeles Dodgers pegged as the favorite to win the World Series after finishing the regular season with the most wins since the franchise moved from Brooklyn to L.A., we'll open up the show with a flashback to last year's opener that paid homage to the longtime voice of the squad, a man who will hopefully be in attendance should the Dodgers make some history in 2017. It's time for the number one news anchor parody segment in sports radio. Here's this week's edition of Sports News Read Like Real News. Hi, everybody, and a very pleasant good evening to you wherever you may be. Legendary broadcaster Vin Scully has been the radio voice of the Dodgers for the last 67 years. He started with the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1950 and was there when the franchise won its only World Series in 1955. In what he's referenced as his favorite broadcasting call, he was perhaps at his most calm, simply saying, Ladies and gentlemen, the Brooklyn Dodgers are the champions of the world. He has a laundry list of famous calls that have followed famous moments, including Don Larson's perfect game in the World Series, Hank Aaron's 715th home run, the Bill Buckner through the legs play, and Kurt Gibson's home run in the 1988 World Series, when in a year that was so improbable, the impossible happened. 
as the days of transistor radios faded away and news was expected to come faster and faster, Vin Scully allowed listeners a place to retreat from the hustle and bustle of the world to enjoy the game of baseball, as told by him. Play on the field seemed to slow down during one of his stories, only to pick back up again once he had concluded. He was thorough and accurate throughout his entire career, only citing just one moment that he wished he had back. Early in his career, back in his third year in 1952, the Dodgers were playing Cincinnati, which had an outfielder named Lloyd Merriman. Merriman hit a ball foul, and Vin meant to say, hot, shot, hit, foul. However, it never came out that way. So as we remember Vin Scully, and in keeping with the sports news read like real news tradition of mocking the delivery of sports anchors, here's one of the greatest broadcasters of all time reading a grocery list. We've got a dozen eggs, a quart of milk, a loaf of bread, a can of frozen orange juice, six small white onions, a green pepper, garlic powder, a package of American cheese, pickles, kosher that is, bananas, cornflakes, maple syrup, toothpaste, paper towels, toilet paper, six bars of soap, hot dogs, quarter pound of chopped meat, steak, lamb chops, package of spaghetti, three apples, bologna, cottage cheese, a pound of butter, two ears of corn, beer, ketchup, peanut butter, soy sauce, and a half a pound of coffee. I'm John Lund for Sports News Red Like Real News. Let's take a quick break to take a seventh inning stretch. When we come back, we'll talk to a late night radio host about her career in sports media. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. As you heard earlier in the show, you can call in or text into the bridge at 929 bridge seven. That's 929-274-3437. Leave a voicemail or text your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of the bridge. Now we do like to pose a question each show to help give you the urge to call in or text into the bridge. This week, we want to know who is your favorite to win this year's World Series and why? Now to this week's guest in Amy Lawrence, the host of the After Hours with Amy Lawrence show on CBS Sports Radio, weekdays from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. Eastern Time. Yes, you heard that right. While many of you in the East Coast are sleeping, Amy and the crew are putting together one of the more fun shows you'll hear on Overnight and keeping me entertained on Twitter since I am a fellow night owl myself. Her career in sports media is a great one, to say the least, filled with highs and lows and a constant theme of perseverance, strong work ethic, and hard work truly paying off. Amy and I will chat about how she broke into the sports media industry after college by doing play-by-play, whatever else it took to get behind the microphone, hosting radio shows while being the only female broadcaster in the entire state or on the entire network, how she's been able to overcome that to get to where she is today before then talking about what goes into her current show and more. You can follow Amy on Twitter. She's at A-Law-Radio. That's A-L-A-W-Radio. And without further ado, let's get into that interview. 
We're here with Amy Lawrence. She is the host of After Hours with Amy Lawrence on CBS Sports Radio. Amy, thanks so much for joining the show. How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. It's nice to talk to you. No problem at all. It's a pleasure for me to get to talk a little bit about the sports media industry. I think this might be the earliest I've conducted an interview for the show, and yet you're also about ready to head to bed. So we'll talk about why that's the case. And I wanted to get started by turning back the clocks a little bit. When did you realize that you wanted to pursue sports media? We didn't have cable TV and for a while while I was growing up. And so my favorite teams by listening on the radio, whether it be the local broadcast for the Boston Celtics, whether it was Westwood One and the NFL, I just fell in love with the idea of describing the action in a way that people who couldn't see it with their own eyes still didn't feel like they were missing anything. So I've been a radio junkie since I was a teenager and sports was something I grew up with. I played four different sports, and I really enjoyed, uh, as I say, the the experience that I had listening to the games, and so that was kind of a natural fit for me, who was always talking. You studied communications at Messiah College, also played hoops there, and also studied accounting, so people know then received a master's degree in TV and radio from Syracuse University. Before getting into your career paths, those who say they want to study journalism or broadcasting, other forms of communication, sometimes get told it won't work or it's not worth it or maybe you should fall back on something else. Whether it was from a person or maybe from an experience, was there something that kept you motivated or inspired to make broadcasting a career, or was your drive also a big contributing factor to that? Well, it was because I loved it. It was because every time the microphone turned on, I felt like I had found my niche and I was in heaven. And so it was really my passion for radio itself, but also for, uh, as I say, the idea of connecting with people, even though they couldn't see you, still feeling like you were having a conversation with them and you could share information. I originally got started in news radio uh, because it's hard to find a job in full-time sports when you're first out of college, at least it was for me as a woman. And so I would volunteer doing sports broadcasts while I was getting paid to do the news. So I would stay, you know, two, three hours after my regular shift at my first job, and and they would let me do the sports for free. And so that's really what kept me going is the passion for it. I had a lot of people tell me along the way that women don't do that. There are no other women in that field. Are you sure you don't want to do something else? At some point, my mom even said to me, how long are you going to pursue this dream without anything to show for it? Because for a long time, you're scuffling around. At least I was. I was scuffling around. I was jumping from job to job. It was bad hours. It was no money. It was moving all over the country. And it, it, it was hard. Um, it always is hard when you start. Um, but I love it so much, and I just can't imagine doing anything else. So I tell people all the time, if you don't have a passion for it, don't try, because it's the passion that keeps you going when your circumstances are less than optimal. It's the passion that keeps you going when you haven't yet reached your goal or even reached a point at which you feel like you can stop and take a breath and rejoice in, you know, in a big step that you've made. At least for me, the first seven, eight, nine years, 
uh, were hard. And I've been fired twice. I've been dropped from rotations. I've uh, been the only female pretty much everywhere I've gone in sports radio and TV. And so it's only the passion and the true love for what I do that has kept me going all of this time. Nobody else could say anything that would ever have kept me going this long. It had to be something that I felt inside. I wanted to hit on some of those different points in your career path. As most stories go, when beginning radio, the start is almost always at the bottom. And I know in your case, as you've been mentioning, there was doing overnights in Rochester, play-by-play in upstate New Hampshire, pretty much whatever you needed to do just in order to get behind the microphone How much did those smaller things, in a sense, help you improve in radio just because of how hard it was and how much of a grind it was early on? It definitely shapes your character. And the other thing it does when you're at small radio stations in situations where uh, you're a one-man band almost, you understand what it is that you're good at. So you get a chance to try your hand at a lot of different things and you figure out what you excel at and what you're best at and what you enjoy and what you know you could never do for a living. For instance, sales. There are a lot of people when I started out who would do some combination of sales and uh, programming. I could never do sales. That is not my area of expertise. I, I could never do it. And I also know that I'm not great with the engineering side of things, right? So you eliminate those things that you're not good at. You figure out what it is that uh, you are good at and you start to you start to go in that direction. And so those those uh, jobs, and, and I, you say smaller markets are at the bottom. My first job was in a top 50 market. I was doing overnights, but Rochester is a heritage news station. WHAM is a heritage news station in Rochester, New York, and it reaches 48 states, in, or excuse me, 38 states in Canada. And so my mom used to sit in my driveway in New Hampshire overnight and listen to me do a broadcast from Rochester. So it, it it was a overnight gig, but it certainly wasn't a small station. And that gave me a great sense of how big time radio is done, even though I was doing overnights and I was volunteering to do sports. Um, and then, yeah, I, I moved to upstate New Hampshire and I got to do a little bit of everything, news anchoring, news reporting, sports play-by-play, uh, writing stories. Writing's really important in this business if you're going to communicate at all. Uh, and then I went to Oklahoma, and Oklahoma was essentially sight unseen. It was my introduction to college football. It was my jump to full-time sports after 9-11. So that was my last big news assignment. And then a couple months later, I made the jump to full-time sports. So I think working at at smaller radio stations or doing a lot of different tasks and juggling a lot of different responsibilities at, at various stations and various stops teaches you skills that are invaluable that once you get to maybe a, a network or a major market, you're expected to know. You've mentioned this in the past, and you can also provide this story from your days in Oklahoma City 
where you were given some great advice and saying that you really never made it in this business until you've been fired at least twice, which ends up happening to you in a two-year time period, where in a sense, when that happens, your world is turned upside down. There's really no answers until you're able to get back on your feet. Was that one of the bigger low points, losing your job, maybe not knowing what the next steps would be? How were you able to overcome whatever that lowest point was for you throughout this path? Yes, I would say that uh, getting fired certainly is a low point because it's scary, uh, because you have bills to pay. And in radio, it's not like you're able to save a bunch of money and you just have this you know, this storehouse that you can dip into. So sure, those were scary moments. And in, in Oklahoma, I was halfway across the country from my family and and had moved out there just for the job. So that's an entirely different uh, situation altogether. And interestingly enough, uh, the year before I got fired in Oklahoma City from, from a, what was a startup sports radio station, I quit a job in a different part of Oklahoma because I was burnt out and because um, I was having trouble with my vocal cords. So twice in two years in Oklahoma, I was without work, at least in the in the radio field. And so I think in addition to what what I was talking about before, where these smaller radio stations, as well as um, the, the entry-level jobs, teach you a lot about a lot of different things, getting fired or losing your job or having your job description changed or uh, anything like that, quitting a job, those things all teach you character. And they also force you to come face-to-face with this question of, is it worth it to me? Because pretty much every broadcaster in the business, maybe not all, I guess there are some that start a job and never have to worry about job security, but that's just not the way the business is now, and it wasn't when I was in it either. It's ultra competitive. There are thousands of people who think they do your job, do it better, and do it for cheaper until they get into that spot. (laughs) But it's, it's that type of an industry where it's very cutthroat, and there's a lot of competition, and if you don't have a passion for it, then it's not going to be worth it to you. Uh, It's a war of attrition, to use that phrase. You know, another phrase we use in sports is survive and advance. I can't tell you how many people I went to college with, at Syracuse even, who were in my my master's degree uh, program studying TV and radio, who are no longer in the business because it's, it's hard and it's not always profitable and it's not always rewarding. And so the people that stick with it, I think that you, it, it becomes something, a labor of love that you realize, as I say before, this is what you were born to do and the tough stuff, um, it just kind of forces that all out of you. You mentioned survive in advance and After Oklahoma City, you also eventually move on to working for ESPN for an eight-year time period, first as freelance, then with much more responsibility at the station as well, though the travel wasn't necessarily the best, having to go to Connecticut each week or each weekend. But what's most fascinating for me, and I'm sure a lot of people, and for those that don't know, when you go to Oklahoma City, you're the 
first female in the state to do a sports talk show. When you go to ESPN Radio, and this isn't that long ago, you're the only female on the station for that eight-year time period. On one hand, that's an incredible accomplishment in itself just to be able to rise to that level. On another hand, it also speaks to how difficult it was and still is for women in the industry to break in. What did it mean for you to be able to do that, and how were you able to make it? Uh, in Oklahoma, it didn't mean anything. At the time, I I was too young and too worried about my own job to even think about the significance of it. And at the time, I had a very small, myopic perspective on the business. I hadn't done network radio yet. All I That's my first full-time sports radio job. So it meant nothing to me. I didn't I didn't have any clue that that was a big deal. Uh, plus I was a lot younger. At ESPN Radio, which just to just to clarify, it's a network. So it had, you know, 500 affiliates around the country, so not just a station. Um, but it, there it just meant I stuck out like a sore thumb. So as much as people believe that, "Oh, you must be so proud, you must feel like a pioneer." No, most of the time in this business, I've just felt like the odd man out. Uh, or the odd woman out. Most of the time, I've just felt outnumbered. Uh, most of the time, I felt insignificant. Most of the time, I felt like I'm invisible or disregarded by by most of the people that I work with. And and that's that's what happens when you're one in a crowd of hundreds and hundreds of of people who aren't like you. And so I think. For the most part, it's not that way anymore. I've just wanted to blend in. I've tried so hard to be one of the guys. I've tried so hard to fit in. If I knew then what I know now, I never would have tried that hard to fit in because being different is what makes me special. Um, But at the time, I think I always felt awkward about it. It it wasn't so much an accomplishment as it was, man, alive. There's nobody else here like me. I, I feel like I'm alone in a huge crowd, if that makes sense. How did you then end up at CBS Sports Radio and into the role that you currently hold? Oh, my gosh. Fantastic bosses. Absolutely fantastic bosses. Two of them, Mark and Eric, are their names. And they got a hold of me, just cold called me, uh, in September of 2012 and told me they were starting the network and would I be interested in coming to work for them. Uh, So Mark is one of those people who gets up in the middle of the night and goes running and he starts his day very early. And so he would listen to me and he told me he was a big fan and wanted me to come work for him. Uh, and so there's a huge blessing in doing overnights all those years at ESPN radio, because that's how my current boss found me. And, uh, we worked it out over a few months. We did an audition and, and we worked out the details and, and I signed my contract on January 1st, 2013. And I am extremely thankful. It's the best career move I ever made. You've balanced sports play-by-play, as we've mentioned, and sports radio, of course, doing the latter now four hours a day, five days a week, really focusing on that along with anything else you have to continue to do. Is there a moment you can look back on and think that that was when you were able to develop your voice in a sense, or maybe the confidence that it takes to be able to do what you do day to day and to have strong opinions, to really deliver sports news and to be able to do a successful sports show? Well, I'm still working on all of those things. You never really get there. And if you think that you've gotten there, then beware because people are going to pass you by. Um, I I believe now that I'm with CBS, 
that I can finally be who I am and no one is asking me to be someone or something that I'm not. So this is the first time in my entire career that I have bosses that I know for sure are on my side, that I know they support me 100%. They may not always agree with everything I say, but they want me to be Amy Lawrence. They don't want me to be a guy. They don't want to be more like a guy. They don't want me to be someone that I'm not. They are extremely happy with exactly who I am, and that's invaluable. It's priceless, and I've never had it before in my career. Um, Even when I was uh, starting out in network radio at my previous employer, because I was contract labor, I always felt like if I made a mistake, it could be my last show. Uh, you know, there, there was no job security there whatsoever. Now, it, it forced me to be better. It forced me to work harder. And I'm thankful for the experience because my previous place of employment gave me my name. Uh, it gave me my, my current job that I have now. And so I wouldn't trade a thing about it. But the, the format of CBS Sports Radio, the style, the bosses, the support, all of that gives you such freedom to focus on the show instead of constantly watching your back and worrying about the next shoe to drop. And that makes such a huge difference in the content and the style and my comfortability and the fact that I don't have to worry that that what I'm doing is wrong because they think what I'm doing is great. As we teased earlier, while many are starting their days in the morning, you're getting ready for bed after having to do your show from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. Eastern Time. What is your typical day Why do you like? Why like that? Having to do your show. How do you know I don't love to do my show? Oh, no, I, I love it as well because I'm up at just about the same hours each night. But <laughs> Well, you might want to rephrase that then. I don't think I'd agree with having to do your show then. <laughs> right. Doing your show in the time slot you that you're completely comfortable with that many people may look at and say, how is she able to do that? What is the typical day like and how you're able to put your show together while also telling about the sports news? Last night's baseball game was over at midnight Eastern time. <laughs> I mean, that, that, all the good stuff happens at night in sports. Right. I, I, people talk about it all the time like it's a plague to work nights. But first of all, I'm a night owl. And second of all, what great sports story happens in the morning? And, 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 and Unless it's some breaking news story. But in terms of events, which is what people care most about, it almost all happens at night. Uh, and so I love being one of the first voices on the air at CBS Sports Radio after the biggest games and the biggest events and the biggest moments. That is fantastic. Uh, not to mention that the hours that I work, it's 11 o'clock on the West Coast when I get started. So literally people are, are wrapping up their day or they've just finished paying attention to sporting events. And we've had some amazing West Coast sports stories over the last few years, like the Warriors, like the Dodgers, like the Raiders. I mean, we're talking about great franchises and, and really neat headlines. Um, so I, I love it. It doesn't bother me at all. We have clearance all the way across the country, more than 300 affiliates. And then by the time we hit our final 90 minutes, say, it's morning drive on the East Coast, and it's a bunch of people who went to bed before anything was over. So they are hearing it for the first time as well. So I feel like we've got the best of both worlds, um, and we pretty much blanket the country. As for my typical day, uh, October is a bad time to ask because there is no typical day. <laughs> it is the busiest month of the year in sports. However, uh, I'm usually home and in bed after I walk my dog and feed my zoo by around 8.30 Eastern time. And then I try to sleep until 
mid-afternoon, get up and, and get cranking. And uh, there's always games that start at 7 o'clock Eastern time or you know 8 o'clock. They straddle. Depending on what season of the year it is, you could have games that don't even start until 10.45 or 11 o'clock Eastern time. So there's plenty to keep me busy in the evenings. How would you describe this show, what you're able to do with whom you work with, what you've been able to build in the past several years doing it now for CBS Sports Radio? If you had to put an epitaph together in a sense, how would you describe what your show currently is now? It's an irreverent look at sports. I refuse to take sports seriously. They're not important. They're just sports. It's not life or death. It's not the war in Afghanistan. It's not the fight against cancer. It's just a game. And while it's a a business to the athletes and the coaches and the owners, I, I get all that. To us, to those of us who are talking about the sports, who are listening to the sports, watching the sports, going to games and events, it's still entertainment. And so I want my show to reflect that. It's not serious, and I will not take it seriously. And this week, you certainly understand why. Uh, I was on the air on Sunday night as as the Las Vegas situation was developing, and it was an active shooter situation, and we knew that. But we had no idea how serious it was or really the the minute details. Uh, We had no idea how many people were going to die and get injured and and what this gunman uh, had been planning for days. But as all of that is unfolding... I'm offering updates as we get them on social media and on TV, and it right away hammers home, again, what I was saying. Sports is insignificant. It's just entertainment, and in the big picture, in the real world, it doesn't matter. And so I don't ever want listeners to think that I take it too seriously, that I take myself too seriously. Uh, I laugh at myself. I, I mess up all the time. I One of my standard lines is, there goes the perfect show. And sometimes it's within 90 seconds of starting off. I, I laugh a lot. We talk about food. We talk about Star Wars. We talk about pets. We do a weekly segment called Ask Amy Anything, where my producer fields questions from our listeners. We do videos. We do pictures. We, we dress up for holidays. In fact, last night I took a, a crockpot full of chili in and fed a bunch of the guys that I work with. It's, it's supposed to be fun as much as you can have fun when you're, of course, entertaining a, a national audience. So there is some pressure there, too. And, and there's a lot that happens. Really, it never stops. It's not like there's a downtime of the year where you don't have to pay attention. Uh, and I tell people all the time the difference between me and you is that you can watch what you want to watch, and we have to watch everything. So there is a lot of work involved, but I, I want people to have fun, and I want this to be a, a bright spot of their night or their morning, whatever it happens to be, and to enjoy the companionship because essentially that's what people are choosing to do, make us their companion uh, when they tune in. Right, and hopefully people listening to this maybe from the East Coast know that you're able to still do a quote-unquote normal show as far as interviews and callers go because as you mentioned people are either waking up in the East Coast or you have West Coast listeners or when the Yankees game runs so long as it did last night you're able to get someone that covers the team and they have no problem talking about the game because it just ended so as you mentioned actually our guest was at 
2.20 Eastern Time live. Right. <laughs> the game got right. over at midnight Eastern Time, and our guest joined us at 2.20 Eastern live. <laughs> I was going to say, Mark probably had to put together his stories and everything, but, you know, once once the dust settled finally in the Bronx after that long game, you're, you're able to hop on and, and talk to people like that. So in a sense of a normal show, what people might expect if they were to turn it on, as far as all the fun things you guys are able to do as well, you, you pretty much will find everything if, if you're able to turn on after hours and listen. Is there a biggest sports moment for you as a person in sports media, whether that's one you've been able to cover in person, something that's happened on the air? Does something stand out that you've been able to be a part of that's maybe a woe moment or, or something that is up there when it comes to sports? Well, when it comes to sports, two of my top moments came from 2016 uh, being in Houston, actually, they were both in Houston. Uh, I've never covered a Final Four until April of 2016. My mom lives in Houston, so I took the opportunity to go to uh, the Final Four that was at Reliance Stadium, or I guess NRG Stadium now. And uh, I had I was there in the building just off the corner of the court when Chris Jenkins hit the shot at the buzzer for Villanova that beat North Carolina. It was the most unbelievable moment I've ever experienced in person in sports. And then... 10 months later, being there at the Super Bowl, also my first Super Bowl. Actually, I guess it wasn't 2017, but it was, the, or it was 2017, but it was the 2016 season. Sorry about that. So being back in Houston for the Super Bowl, the first one that ever goes into overtime, and experiencing that in person. So my first Final Four and my first Super Bowl, uh, both happening in the span of 10 months and in the same stadium, and it, it was pretty cool. Uh, but my my career moment, my favorite career moment of all time, even though I was working at my previous network and I was doing a sports broadcast, was the moment that we found out that we had finally killed Osama bin Laden, and I, and I was the one who was breaking the news to all of the listeners who were who were at the time uh, following Sunday Night Baseball. It was a national broadcast; it was a separate channel, so it was the only thing airing on ESPN Radio at the time. And the, the news was slowly coming in. Uh, there were bulletins, so we were breaking in every few minutes to tell people that Osama bin Laden was dead and that a, a team of um, military had been able to track him down. But for the longest time, we didn't really know a lot of details. It was such a significant moment, though, that I was shaking. I mean, I remember opening up the mic the first few times to tell people that um, finally, nearly a decade after 9-11, that he was dead. And I almost couldn't talk because my teeth were chattering and my, my stomach was roiling. And, and yeah, it was um, – I'll never forget that moment, early May in 2011. I, I'll never forget how I felt. I'll never forget uh, the pride. I'll never forget feeling like I was delivering the best news that our country could possibly hear at that moment. We've mentioned that you were the only female broadcaster in the state or on networks at times. You've also won a Gracie Award. You were named one of the 100 important sports talk radio hosts in America in 2015 <laughs> as the only female personality to make that list. There's a lot of accolades that you've been able to get as the years have gone on. I'm sure there's a lot of personal accomplishments you've crossed off your list as well. Is there something that you're most proud of to this point? Proud of? No. Um, I never stop to really think of it that way because, it, you know, if you stop 
to, to admire your accomplishments too much, as they say, other people are going to pass you by. So I guess when I'm done, uh, when I finally retire or I, you know, I get booted out <laughs> of the studio, then I will, I'll stop to think about what I'm most proud of. But I would say having the opportunity to do play-by-play for NCAA tournament games on Westwood One Radio a couple of springs ago, that was a, a moment. I, I It's not that I don't get nervous anymore when I turn the mic. In fact, I always have butterflies, but nervous to the point where I almost couldn't see the notes on my page in front of me because I had grown up listening to Westwood One. And it was it was such an amazing moment for me to finally be a play-by-play announcer, national audience, NCAA tournament game on a network that I grew up listening to, that I used to, when I was a kid, if my mom would tell me to go to bed, I would be listening to my little radio, my little Walkman under my covers, worried that if she walked down the hall, she was going to catch me when I was supposed to be sleeping. And it was it was Westwood One, usually NFL broadcast that I'd be listening to. So <laughs> that was a pretty amazing moment and uh, really enjoyed that. It was, yeah, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun and I look forward to doing that again sometime soon. You mentioned the segment, Ask Amy Anything, that there are some video examples of this and it's something people can interact with on Twitter. I also have a similar segment on this show that I call Easy or pass, which is some quick-hitting questions from what we've talked about or some fun ones, and what better way to close out than to have you answer even more questions on someone else's. (laughs) So you can certainly pass on any of these, as the segment says, but I I think we'll be able to have some fun with these. The first one that you don't actually have to give, but since you're in sports radio, I have to ask in general, what is your hottest take, since that is the theme word that's been thrown around now in the past several years of sports radio and broadcasting. Oh, no, I'm going to pass. I hate it. I absolutely hate that phrase. If you had phrased it any other way, I refuse to give hot takes. It's annoying. It drives me insane. I mean, I can tell you a strong opinion that people don't agree with, but I'm not giving you a hot take. Uh-uh. Sorry, John. Oh, no. no that, w- that was phrased on purpose. I kind of agree with you as well. I think it becomes a little silly sometimes when that yes. said, a uh, hot take. Instead of just, well, maybe it's something that someone feels strong about. So in a sense, that was probably the perfect answer that I'll ever get on this show. So well done right out of the gate. You've traveled a lot also for work, but for leisure as well. What are some of your favorite vacation spots? Wow. I love, love, love Alaska. Most beautiful shades of gray I've ever seen in my life. And one of my fondest vacation or travel memories was whitewater rafting in Juneau. So that was a fantastic vacation. I went on a cruise with some family members a few summers ago, and I loved it. Um, I've been to Cuba the last two summers, and while I wouldn't say it's a favorite travel spot necessarily because I wasn't going as a tourist, I have made some amazing friendships, and I have a Cuban family that I've seen the last two years. Uh, my my church sends a team to work with a church in, in a poor suburb of Havana, and it, it's now a part of my heart. Uh, 
their suburb of Havana, and that, and that family is a part of my heart. When I was in college, I went to Ireland on a cross-cultural experience, and Ireland has got to be one of the most beautiful places on earth. <laughs> so I, I would say those three. I still haven't been to the Grand Canyon. That's on my bucket list, but I still haven't been to Hawaii. So those two places, maybe the, the next time you ask me, I'll be able to say Hawaii and the Grand Canyon. <laughs> Excellent. Not bad choices at all. What would your go-to or would-be go-to karaoke song be? <laughs> Let's see. I don't typically sing karaoke. I do sing in the shower. <laughs> Anything from Shania Twain. So Any Man of Mine would be a great song. I love Shania Twain. <laughs> Since the season is quickly upon us, what has been your best Halloween costume? Oh, my gosh. I love telling this story on my show. When I was in elementary school, we had a Halloween party at a roller skating rink, and I dressed as a dictionary. <laughs> my mom and I made a huge dictionary out of a cardboard box, and I will never forget trying to skate around the rink with my dictionary costume. <laughs> I really hope there are no pictures anywhere. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't know if you guys have interns in the fall, but I think you might have to get someone on that case to make the next dictionary costume for the next Halloween party. It needs to happen. <laughs> I don't think so. What is your go-to children's game or board game that you would definitely be able to win should you play it right now? Ooh, I love Clue. My family and I were big fans of Clue. Uh, we also love categories, and um, I'm trying to think, what's the, oh, Apples to Apples. We're big fans of Apples to Apples, too. Uh, of course, we played Monopoly and Trivia Pursuit when those things were big. Uh, my favorite game or activity right now, though, is uh, doing crossword, I'm sorry, not crosswords, doing jigsaw puzzles with my 95-year-old grandmother. She loves jigsaw puzzles, and the last time I visited her, she was working on a jigsaw puzzle that was a montage of outhouses set in country country uh, settings. It was so cute, and we laughed so hard putting together a jigsaw puzzle of outhouses. What is your favorite item from your childhood bedroom, whether that's a poster or an album that you might have or anything along those lines from your childhood bedroom? Well, I still have the Bible that my mom gave me when I was 13. My mom and my grandma gave me, and my grandma since passed away. Um, so that that's something that's precious to me. But I do have a poster that I got in ninth grade. Is the, the, the five Celtics that caused me to fall in love with basketball. Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, Robert Parrish, uh, Danny Ainge, and Dennis Johnson. That Those were the, the big five in Boston in the 80s. And so when I was a kid... Larry Bird's my all-time favorite athlete, but anything to do with the Celtics, and I was in heaven. So that poster has been hung up and taken down and laminated and hung up and taken down in at least a dozen places, if not more, uh, from everywhere that I've moved. And it's, it's probably one of my most cherished childhood possessions. The last one, not said in jest. Should we cross paths, would you be able to teach me how to throw a spiral in the next spiraling video? Because I honestly do not know how to throw a spiral with a football, and it's something that's haunting me because if I have children, they're going to want to know, and I don't have any idea. You've learned. So if we cross paths, can I be the next person on the video series but with you as the teacher? 
Yes, I absolutely can teach you. Uh, I always get on my brothers for not ever teaching me how to throw a football. Um, although I, probably one of them can't do it anyway. He's not very sporty. But the other one can pretty much do anything. So, yes, now I can. I had a good producer, uh, a good teacher and producer, Tom. And so uh, I feel like I have the technique now that I can pass along to other people. Excellent. Well, well, we'll pencil that in should that opportunity ever arise and I can become another viral video star for the after hours show for all oh the my fun gosh, things a star. you're doing. You know what's really sad about that? On YouTube, we have two videos, me originally demonstrating how I couldn't throw a football and then the one where I've learned and the YouTube video of me not being able to throw the football probably has three times as many views and it infuriates me. I'm like, wait a minute, I learned how. Why aren't you all watching that video too? <laughs> well, now I'm going to have to put that in my show notes, but encourage the listeners to watch both. Don't just watch the one <laughs> where she's unable to do it. Amy, thanks so much for dropping by and peeling the curtain back on what you're able to do in sports media and what you've done throughout your career. It's definitely admirable for all the different steps you've had to take, and hopefully people learned a thing or two about the industry and some of the things you do on your show. So if they're awake, they can listen. If not, there's always podcast versions as well. So definitely something to check out. Maybe we can catch up again down the road. As mentioned, I really do need to learn how to throw a football one day. So that's at least something to look forward to. But thanks again for stopping by. I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. It was fun. Forgive me for some of the dumb things I said. It's only because I've been up for, well, a really long time. <laughs> it is time for bed. So get some rest for an, another week of sports. All right. Thanks so much, Don. Thanks again to Amy for jumping on the show. We'll now jump into the toll booth with Donnie Wrightside. Donnie is a professional handicapper who knows a thing or two about the lines of the sports world and will be joining the bridge for a weekly segment to help get us on the right side of those lines. Each week, Donnie will offer up some of his best bets to correspond with the bridge fade of the week, where listeners are urged to completely go in the opposite direction of myself. Since my own wallet will be opened and I usually have no luck at all finding any success. You can find Donnie at DonnieRideside.com and at SportsBookReview.com and also follow him on Twitter. He's at RightSideVP. And remember, this segment is for entertainment purposes only. Without further ado, here's this week's edition of The Toll Booth with Donnie Rightside. Has anybody got a dime? Oh, yeah. I don't have a dime. Somebody's got to go back and get a shitload of dimes. Oh. Hey, folks, Donnie Wrightside here with SportsBookReview.com and also DonnieWrightside.com. Coming to you on the bridge here, crossing the toll booth, trying to pick you up a little bit more money heading into this weekend. Last week should have a little bit extra change in that, you know, open up the console there, pull out a couple dollars, went 2-0 and last week in NFL football play. We got another toll booth two-pack for you this weekend, one in NCAA football, one in the National Football League. Why don't we get started here? On 10-7, which will be Saturday, a noon start, Eastern Standard Time, 380 
5-3-86 Georgia Bulldogs versus the Vanderbilt Commodores. Looking at time of recording right now, the line is currently sitting at sportsbook.com at minus 18 over under that one at 40 and a half. If we're taking a look at this side, we're actually going to lean on a side in this one. If you look at the Georgia Bulldogs coming into play, a pristine 5-0. and Easy winner opening day over Appalachian State. Go on the road with a nice 20-19 victory over the Fighting Irish. Easy cleanup victory over Sanford, 42-14. Mississippi State Bulldogs, 31-3. And Tennessee Volunteers, 41-0 in that game. Probably putting Butch Jones and his uh, staff, one would think, out of play in just a few weeks there. Not looking good for the Tennessee Volunteers and Butch Jones. But back to the game here. Georgia Bulldogs, as we said, a perfect 5-0. Going to play the Vanderbilt Commodores. Middle Tennessee State opening day, 28-6 winner for the Commodores. Alabama A&M, an easy 42-0 winner. Close one with Kansas State, 14-7. Then we hit a little bit of a dry spot here. The next two weeks, sort of a step up in competition. At home versus Alabama, a 59-0 shellacking. Going then down to the Swamp in Florida and losing 38-24. Almost had the cover in that one. If it weren't for a late fourth and one jaunt by the Florida Gators to cover that point spread, I'm going to lean on the points this week and take the 18 points from sportsbook.com. I think Vanderbilt is much better than what they showed the past two weeks. And I also see Georgia riding high at this point, heading on the road. They are a better football team. There's no question about it. But again, folks, we're not asking Vanderbilt to cover, excuse me, we're not asking Vanderbilt to win this football game just to cover the football team. First one in NCAA action will go with plus 18 with the Vanderbilt Commodores. Why don't we flip it over to some NFL action, folks, on Sunday, 1 p.m. kickoff. Interesting one here, 465, 466. That's going to be Carolina and Detroit, the Panthers and the Lions. Cam Newton's going to be under center versus Matthew Stafford. Taking a look at some of the early lines right now at sportsbook.com, we're showing minus 2.5 and in the favor for the home team, Detroit Lions, and a over-under of 44. If we take a look at this football game, we're going to lean on taking the home team team here and the minus two and a half Matthew Stafford's been a fantastic quarterback over the past few years at home anywhere between plus three to minus three you're going to lean on Matthew Stafford to have the football there at the end of the game both of these football clubs coming in at three and one overall if we look the Carolina season opening against San Francisco 23 to three beating the Buffalo Bills nine to three Tough, shaky one there against New Orleans, a 34-13 loss, but bouncing back very well, heading into New England as nine-point dogs, winning outright 33-30. Detroit on the season, season opening victory versus the Arizona Cardinals, 35-23. New York Giants, 24-10 on the road, a nice victory there. One would think they were stolen, a victory there versus the Atlanta Falcons, end up losing 30-26 when it looked like they scored the go-ahead touchdown with under a minute to go, was reviewed, clock ran out, they did take a loss in that football game, and going on the road, beating a pretty good Minnesota football team, albeit without their starting quarterback and Dalvin Cook getting injured in that one, but pulling out the victory in division 14-7. We're going to lean on the Detroit Tigers. Detroit Tigers, how about that? Baseball season playoffs. I'm a little bit in over my head right now. Detroit Lions will take with the minus 2.5 here. Hopefully we can put a nice 2-0 streak together again this week so we can put more money in that console so you can cross that bridge and pay that toll. Folks, this has been Donnie Seymour with SportsbookReview.com and also DonnieRightside.com. Cash those tickets folks left side strong side left side strong side left side left side we'll now move to another installment of five minutes in the film room with joe barese 
Joe and I have been teammates on the basketball court, sports editors for our college newspaper that is no longer in literal print, and hosts for the prestigious John and Joe Sports Show, which could have been found on 99.5 WUSR Scranton and the Royal Television Network each week. Since Joe usually sees more movies in the year than the 52 weeks within it, he now holds the reins to this segment. And don't worry, there aren't any plot spoilers, so you'll still be able to see these films, just with a better breakdown of what will be in store if you do so. Along with Joe's analogy of the film compared to the sports world at the end. This week, Joe will break down American Made, which Rotten Tomatoes describes as the tale of a TWA pilot, played by Tom Cruise in yet another of his films involving an airplane, who is recruited by the CIA to provide reconnaissance on the burgeoning communist threats in Central America. He soon finds himself in charge of one of the biggest covert CIA operations in the history of the United States that spawned the birth of the Medellin cartel and eventually almost brought down the Reagan White House with the Iran-Contra scandal. Oh, baby. You can find Joe on Twitter. He's at Duke Mish. That's D-U-K-E-M-I-C-H. You can also read his movie reviews, previews, and ratings at cupofdashjoe.com. Again, that's cupofdash or hyphen or whatever you'd like to call it, joe.com. And without further ado, here's this week's edition of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. What's up, everybody? I'm Joe Burris, and this is Five Minutes in the Film Room. Doug Liman is a director that doesn't really get the credit he deserves and sneakily makes some pretty great films. The Bourne franchise is usually credited to director Paul Greengrass, but Liman was the one who kicked it off with 2002's The Bourne Identity, which some still see as the best in the franchise. Mr. and Mrs. Smith is not the best movie, but it's without a doubt an enjoyable film. One thing we could all agree on, though, Jumper is terrible. 2014's Edge of Tomorrow had the worst marketing campaign of all time that didn't capture the tone of the film. The title also made it seem like a soap opera, so for home video release, it was changed to Live, Die, Repeat. But the marketing did not speak to the quality of the movie, which shocked audiences, including myself, and sparked a sequel in the future. And as the credits rolled, a familiar name popped up as the director, Doug Liman. It also stars Tom Cruise. Cruise and Lyman clearly enjoyed working together because they decided to team up for American Made. But could they carry over the success? Let's go to the tape. American Made is based on the true story of the life of Barry Seal, a pilot turned CIA agent who used his connections to aid a drug cartel and make a whole lot of money. I didn't know anything about Seal, so I was fascinated to learn the history, which is told through the eyes of Seal, played by Tom Cruise. Now, it definitely takes liberties with the true story, but not so much in an off-the-wall way. It acknowledges certain conspiracy theories without stating them as fact. This is why the tone of the film is airtight. After seeing a few films that have had severe tonal issues, it was refreshing to see one that nails what it's trying to accomplish. I compare American Made to The Big Short in that it perfectly balances humor with drama, which allows the movie to progress quickly and never lose its excitement. Because it is told from the perspective of Seal, what he does is glorified, 
but not in a negative way. It fits because it showed the bombastic nature of what he felt he was doing and stayed away from the repercussions of his acts. It kept the movie focused and fun. No matter what you think of Tom Cruise off the big screen, it's difficult to deny how great he is as an actor and how devoted he is to his characters. American Made is no different, as Seal is a perfect role for Cruise. He's played an arrogant pilot before with great success. Donald Gleason keeps popping up in things, and he never disappoints. In American Made, he's a member of the CIA who recruits Seal and serves as his boss. I'm always impressed when someone can be charming and act like they're your best friend, but still show their authority. Gleason does that perfectly here. Sarah Wright also puts in a good performance as Seal's wife. The way the story is handled shows the experience of those involved. American Maid could have easily turned into a Michael Bay's pain and gain, with the comedy not quite fitting and more so just making you uncomfortable. That's why when you need the craft of a veteran director, you don't get, you know, Michael Bay. The way Lyman interweaves Seal narrating the story through a camcorder in the 80s and moved through seven or eight years of Seal's life, spending the perfect amount of time on each act is incredible. He knew what he was doing. And I don't have a flaw in this film. The execution is impeccable. The bottom line, American Made is another solid outing from Doug Lyman, which we should come to expect by now. His second team up with Tom Cruise worked as Cruise captured a role we all knew he could knock out of the park based on his extensive filmography. The tone is perfect as the comedy lands, but the movie remains intense. It tells a story about a man in history, but it isn't shown as a biopic, which makes the movie a lot of fun, and I find it difficult to find a flaw in the film. I don't know how memorable it will be, but American Made will serve as another very good film from the veteran director who is still making quality films 21 years after his first hit. Maybe audiences will forget what he's capable of again, and he'll continue to fly under the radar until his next movie. And when you look at his IMDb page and see American Made next to The Born Identity, Edge of Tomorrow, and Swingers, you'll say, oh yeah, he directed that too. I'll rank American Made as Frank Gore. He's a great running back that flies under the radar who still has a place in the NFL at age 34 and has shown consistency throughout his career. His career rushing yard total is up there with the greats. Did you know Gore is 8th all-time, and could be 5th by season's end? I'm sure you recognize all the names above him. Eric Dickerson, Jerome Bettis, LaDainian Tomlinson, Curtis Martin, Barry Sanders, Walter Payton, and Emmett Smith. All Hall of Famers. Gore sounds quite a bit like American Maid and Doug Lyman to me. Sexy. Check! Uh, check, please. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can find The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast. There you'll find the newest episodes of The Bridge every Thursday night. And also be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. You can also find The Bridge on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and on the TuneIn app to listen live on Sports Radio America on Wednesday nights. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll dive into some Major League Baseball dabble in the NBA, circle the wagons of the National Football League, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On the bridge, keep
keeping you connected with all things sports.